circle, yes, we roll. Take 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay Area. This is Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. We are your hosts tonight, Kenny C., Hannah Wilson, Sharon Peterson, Kat Petru, and Theodora. We can do that again. Our mics were on. Hannah Wilson, Sharon Peterson, Kat Petru, and Theodora. It is March 8th, International Women's Day. Tonight we bring you the voices of influential women who have fought for our rights on a variety of fronts. Audre Lorde, Bella Absag, Dolores Huerta, Angela Davis, to name a few. You will also hear from some of our very own women of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, sharing insights about the Me Too movement, activism, and sisterhood. All that and more tonight on Full Circle. The title of this is Dan. Dan? Dan is in Africa. It's a part of, um, a low part of Nigeria, between Nigeria and Dahomey. And originally it was part of the uh, kingdom of Dahomey. And do you remember the Amazons, right? Okay. The title of this is The Woman of Dan Still Dance with Swords in Their Hands to Mark the Time when they were warriors. I did not fall from the sky, I, or descend like a plague of locusts to drink color or strength from your earth. And I do not come like rain as a tribute or symbol for earth's becoming. I made me a woman, dark and open, Sometimes I fall like night, soft and terrible, only when I must die before I rise again. I do not come like a warrior with an unsheathed sword in my mouth, binding my tongue, slicing my throats to ribbons of service with a smile while the blood runs down and out through holes in the two sacred mounds of my chest. I come like a woman who I am, sometimes spreading out through night's laughter and promise, dark heat warming whatever it touches that is living, consuming only what is already dead. Welcome to our special edition of Full Circle. We are your hosts, the women of First Voice, here to celebrate International Women's Day with you. And what better way to begin a show by women in support of women than with the words of Audre Lorde. That was her poem, Dan, a self-described black lesbian mother warrior poet. Audre Lorde dedicated both her life 
and her creative talent to confronting and addressing injustices of racism, sexism, classism, and homophobia. Tonight we celebrate the incredible contributions women have made in our communities throughout the country and around the world. To our four sisters, thank you for your courage. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you for organizing. We are able to be here today to produce the show because of you. We take a moment to pay respects to the incredible Addie Gevins and Jolene Beiser for compiling the Pacifica Radio Archives Project, American Women Making History and Culture, 1963 to 1982. Most of the voices you will hear tonight are a part of this project. Also, a big thanks to everyone who donated these past few weeks to keep KPFA strong. We absolutely could not do it without you. Please feel free to continue to show your support online at kpfa.org or at 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Now, when I first heard about this show designed to pay homage to women, I really didn't know much about the day. I admit I didn't think it had much to do with black women in America. I agreed to be a part of the program because even though I didn't know much about International Women's Day, I consider it an honor to celebrate women. As I started to research the event, I wondered if other people were as clueless about the meaning of International Women's Day as I was. What can you tell me about International Women's Day? That my boss gave me flowers. Unfortunately, I don't know anything about International Women's Day. I don't know much. I didn't know it was like a day that we celebrated, but I think it's really cool that we have that because I'm all about feminism and women empowerment. I am not American. I'm from Kazakhstan. It's a post-Soviet country. International Women's Day, uh, March 8th, it's a very uh, widely celebrated holiday in our country. So I know, I think a lot about this. My coworkers were just telling me they got it off when they were younger from school. I never got it off. I don't know anything about the history. I know it exists. Well, I know that it started as a labor issue. I believe in the early 1900s, there was a terrible fire of seamstresses that all died because they were locked in in New York City. And after that, women started protesting working conditions. I learned on International Women's Day, we celebrate and honor women's achievements and contributions in the world. It's celebrated in over 100 countries, and it's an official holiday in many of those countries. More widely known and celebrated abroad, but its roots are very American. The Socialist Party of America organized the first National Women's Day in New York in February 1908. 15,000 female textile workers marched in protest, demanding shorter hours, pay equity, and suffrage. The 1910 International Socialist Women's Conference advocated that it be an annual event held on the last Sunday of every February. In 1975, the UN proclaimed March 8th as International Women's Day. The United States Congress designated March as Women's History Month in 1987. As I researched International Women's Day, the absence of black women was glaring. The organizers completely ignored the hundreds of years of free labor and brutality of enslaved African women in America. White women got voting rights in 1920. Black women, not until 1965. 
black women didn't march with those women protesting unfair labor practices in textile factories because they weren't allowed to work in those factories. The Nonprofit Institute for Women's Policy Research estimates white women will close the wage gap with white men by the year 2051, black women in the year 2124, and Latino women not until the year 2233. While equality with men may be the ultimate goal, perhaps women should take a minute to focus on achieving respect and equality for all women. Now that we know more about Inter-Women's Day, we wanted to talk about some of the experiences that have made headlines. But more important than that, experiences that forever change the lives of people like you and me. Please note that we will be sharing personal accounts of sexual violence. We encourage you to take exquisite care of yourself as you listen. Get a glass of water, step away from the radio, take a deep breath. You know best what you need. Well, as I read the Me Too accounts, they evoked my own memories. I thought about the systemic forces creating silence in girls and women, and how we're reclaiming our voices, speaking out, and becoming activists. I'm Hannah, and this is my story. During this year of Me Too revelations, of women naming sexual violence and harassment, the collective chorus of women's voices has had an impact on me, as it has on many women. I don't especially think of myself as a woman who was sexually abused. I haven't experienced rape or incest. But as I've read the Me Too accounts, memories have come to me. They're not memories that are so repressed that it's a shock to remember them. They were just pushed to the back consciousness, resting among life's moments, as if being groped, harassed, and exposed to men's genitals was ordinary and uneventful. When I was a teenager, I worked after school in a local mom-and-pop grocery store. Each day at work, I got on the stepladder in the storage room. I didn't need his help, his hands holding my thighs as I pulled down the toilet paper stored on the top shelf. The owner of the gourmet Italian grocery store was older than my father, his daughter my age, 16. His wife worked the front cash register. Each day at work, he caught me there on the ladder. To myself, I pretended it was nothing. There was a narrow place in the back of the store, a small aisle with a coffee pot and a mini fridge. One day on my break, I was pouring coffee when I felt a sour breath on my neck. I turned around, but I couldn't move, pressed up against the counter by the weight of him. His hands lifting my skirt, one hand sliding underneath, touching me between my legs through my underwear. The shock of sensation, intense, startling, and unwanted. His wife was on the other side, beyond the partition, not so very far away. It never occurred to me to yell or to threaten to tell. He removed his hand and released me. My break over, I returned silently to bagging. How does a girl learn silence? Why does a girl feel she must make up a story in order to quit? Not feeling entitled to say, Bastard, you owe me two weeks severance or I'm telling your wife. Instead, I lied and said, We're moving to California. I was 16 in 1967, disempowered as girls were, 
never thinking we could assert ourselves or voice our rage against male aggression. Instead, we learned to swallow the abuses and not make a fuss. But I was lucky. Three years later, I encountered the women's liberation movement. It was an immense relief to have my personal experiences given a cultural context, named systemically as sexism, patriarchy, misogyny. In discussion groups, our stories poured forth, our anger shone in us, a light that overcame depression and shame. We are in another historic moment now, women joining voices and speaking out, gaining power and solidarity. In spite of pushback, women continue raising their voices about sexual harassment and assault and are also taking leadership in a multitude of arenas in Black Lives Matter, indigenous struggles, for climate justice, as high school students protesting gun violence, as women running for elected office, the list goes on. We will not be silenced. At the grocery store, I often did bagging. Once a famous soprano from New York City's Metropolitan Opera, who lived in the small New Jersey suburb, put her sundries on the counter. I began bagging her groceries. The grocer's wife, who was ringing her up, begged, Please, signora, sing us something. The diva nodded. The opening of an aria vibrated the air. I paused in my bagging, frozen with astonishment at the power and clarity of her voice, her woman's voice, transforming the very air with its force and beauty. Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. I'm Kenny C., and you just heard the voice of current apprentice Hannah Wilson. Thank you for sharing your story, Hannah. And this is Kat. How does it make you feel hearing your commentary now, Hannah? Well, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to be vulnerable, but I'm really sustained by the bravery of other women. And I also know that hearing true accounts makes connections between all of us so that we can move collectively from there and take action. I hear you, Hannah. I know that as women, we all have one, two, maybe even 20 stories. Um, and we have to band together as women in this fight for respect and safety. It has become all too clear over the years th to me that if we don't have each other's backs, no one will. Yeah. And I also feel you on the vulnerability of sharing the pain that you went through. And like Kenny C. just said, sharing in order to show up for each other in a good way, we need to share our stories and tell the truth and demand that we're heard and believed. So what you're about to hear is the first radio commentary I ever made. Uh, it, I wasn't, I didn't plan it and it just sort of came out all at once and I really appreciate you all taking the time to listen now and just another reminder to please take really excellent care of yourself as you listen. I first learned the term rape culture in September of 2015. 
I was 28 years old. When I was little, I imagined a 28-year-old woman would not be discovering her sexuality. I bought the image mainstream culture sold me. 28-year-old women know themselves, they get married, and they have babies. Thank you, white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, imperialist America for this so-called fairy tale. So I'm 28 years old and I'm realizing that an experience I had in college can be called rape. Rape. This word reeks of poison and despair and loss. I can literally feel my heart start to pound as I remember all the implications of this word. But I cannot get stuck in this trauma. Anyone who's resonating with anything I'm saying, please know that by not getting stuck in trauma, I don't mean don't feel your feelings. Feel your feelings, please go there. As far as I know, the only way out is through. The healing process for me begins by asking a lot of questions. What does this 28-year-old realization mean for my future? What does it mean for our world? How can I relate to my body now? How can I dance and experience pleasure and risk opening up to another person knowing that my body was once a site of violence and violation, that it once did not belong to me? In part, attempting to find answers to these questions, initiating this healing process, comes from ripping that Pepto-Bismol pink faux cotton candy fairy tale to shreds. We don't need to pretend that things are okay when they're not. You can't rid your garden of weeds by simply pulling at the stems. You've got to get to the roots, yank them the hell out using all the resources at your disposal, and simultaneously, with love and tenderness, plant taproots of resilience. Take me outside Sit in the green garden Nobody out there But it's okay now Bathe in the sunlight Don't mind if rain falls Take me outside Sit in the green garden Another element of healing for me is the fact that such miraculous transformation and soulful strength training is absolutely non-negotiable. I can experience pleasure again because I must. Because not enjoying life, living in fear, hiding from intimacy is not an option. I've spent so long apologizing for my very existence. In subtle ways to be sure, but for so long, a deep and rather discreet part of me felt I shouldn't be here. It has taken courage and faith and wise and generous teachers, friends, and family to help me steadily come to the realization that I am here and my life is meant to be lived and enjoyed 
to be celebrated. I've always wanted to be a beacon for justice, but somehow I thought I needed to dissolve, to put myself last or disappear in order to manifest justice. It really makes no sense, but I believe justice and pleasure to be two very separate and mutually exclusive aims. Turns out they're not. They need each other and I need both of them. It is my birthright to discover pleasure, bliss, ecstasy, and intimacy again and again and again because I want everyone who's ever been violated to know that there is another way to live and it involves tremendous healing. It does require, in my experience, opening to the unknown and rediscovering our bodies in a way that is not for anyone else's pleasure, but our own. It demands honesty with ourselves first and foremost. It means learning the language of our own bodies and honing discernment about what is truly safe and what is not. All summer long, I have had the extreme honor of meeting with a phenomenal group of women in a course entitled Just Pleasure, Revolutionary Approaches to the Erotic. The season began with a quote that reminds me daily of my capacity for profound healing and visionary transformation. Shared with me by my teacher, the words of Anais Nin, a beacon of feminist eros, are a compelling invitation for us all. She says, And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. You're listening to 94.1 FM KPFA. This is Full Circle, and that was the voice of graduate apprentice Kat Petru. Many thanks, Kat, for sharing your story. This piece really hits me. Uh, we can talk all day about the traumas we have all incurred, the victim narrative and so on, and the mainstream media does just this and, in fact, is very good at it. But if we're not actively doing something with our struggle and with our pain, actively working towards a place of healing and wellness, then it is all worthless. For me, it's a question of moving forward from merely surviving to thriving. And uh, thank you, Kat and Hannah, for your uh, courage. Um, it mm. takes a lot to reveal even a small bit of a, of these experiences. Um, and Kat, I especially appreciate that you show us the way out, which is internal, it's individual, but you can't do it alone. Mm. Mm. And Hannah, I, I started working about the same few years later than you did, mm -hmm. and I remember that age well. Um, I also remember that uh, bosses, co-workers would have like Posters, pinups on the wall. You, you you knew who was who, um, a lot of times, and uh, 
today is the same stuff is going on, but it's more insidious. However, I think we can look to Me Too and Time's Up. Mm-hmm. And that's where our improvement lies. It's with us and with our male allies. Mm. Yes. And uh, Time's Up for a lot of <laughs> bad stuff. <laughs> up next, <laughs> Bella Abzug reminds us not to forget that we have the say in our lives. We must have choices. Abzug, nicknamed Battling Bella, was an American lawyer, U.S. representative, activist, and women's movement leader. In 1971, Abzug joined other leading feminists like Gloria Steinem, Shirley Chisholm, and Betty Friedan to found the National Women's Political Caucus. Here she is at her finest. I believe we have to wage a number of campaigns in this country concerning women's rights and human rights. We have to campaign to make birth control information and services available to all who want them, particularly young men and women, so that the need for abortion does not even arise. Many states, as you know, still deny access to these services, and we should work to see that these laws are eliminated. No one, no government, no social group, No religious group, no individual, no president, no country has a right to impose a moral code on another human being. Each of us should be free to choose a lifestyle that best suits us. In a democracy, freedom of choice is the underlying philosophical principle of the system. All abortion laws are a negation of that principle. Women, of course, are concerned with the right to life. Women are concerned with the right to live. We are concerned with the right to live. We are concerned with the right to live in peace. The right to provide children with food, with clothing and shelter and decent schools, and decent health care and the right to develop their abilities. These are the rights women are fighting for now. And these are the rights women will continue to fight for and organize and lobby for against President Nixon's budget, which would take away milk from the kids, take away health centers, take away education, take away money for programs that protect young children even from lead paint poisoning. It is because of all of these things, is because of our fundamental respect for the dignity of human life that we are all here tonight here in America, there in France, there in many other places all over this world, so that we can join hands symbolically with our sisters all over this world to create an earth and a place to live for women and for men that will give true freedom and true human dignity to all of the human beings on this earth, a way in which all people can live in control of their own lives, in control of their own bodies, in control of their own destinies, hoping and believing that there can be a basis for each people to live in economic and social and political justice. That's the reason we are here together, as somebody asked me in the back of the room. It's international. Life is, and the right to a job, and the right to control your body, and the right to have peace, and the right to have decent shelter and health care is an international movement and it's a movement of all people and that's why we're here together bless you all welcome back to full circle tonight we celebrate international women's day with sounds from the pacifica archives featuring the work of activists poets politicians musicians and first voice apprentices so far audrey lord has reminded us to be proud of our womanhood 
Hannah and Kat showed us that womanhood can be exploited, but also how our inner strength helps us travel through the pain and to make it to the other side, where love lives. And Bella Abzug, the voice you just heard, reminds us of the importance of demanding agency. We are the women of First Voice, and tonight we stand in solidarity with all women in the fight to reclaim our bodies, our minds, and our hearts, and our constant struggle to make space for ourselves. We must remember, with strength and pain, endurance and love also come. We've got more powerful voices to share with you, but first, some music. This is Say My Name by Maimona Youssef, a.k.a. Mumu Fresh. If I should die tomorrow at the hands of the policeman to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. That was Say My Name by Maimona Youssef, a.k.a. Mumu Fresh, and I am one of your five hosts this evening, Kat Petru. Tonight, we, the women of First Voice, celebrate and remember the struggle, solidarity, resistance, and resilience of our foremothers. We share these stories from these... We share these stories, these voices, so that our daughters know where they come from. This is Sharon Peterson. Up next, we'll hear from Shirley Chisholm, a U.S. politician, educator, and author, the first black woman elected to the U.S. Congress in 1968. Took that long. Chisholm represented New York's 12th congressional district for seven terms from 1969 to 1983. Oh, And in 1972, Shirley Chisholm was the first black presidential candidate for a major party and first black female presidential candidate for a major party. They're going to see me in action at the national convention, and I mean this, I am committed to this, as an instrument of people in this country who've been left out, an instrument of people whose counsel and advice has never been sought in terms of putting a ticket together, only using the people every four years for their votes. I look at all of these distinguished senators telling all of the people what they're going to do for women, what they're going to do for blacks, what they're going to do for Chicanos, what they're going to do for this group and the other group. Well, darn it, they've been in the United States Senate for 10 or more years. If they had a concern about the American Indian, they would have done something already about the miserable living conditions that those Indians live on in terms of the reservations where 70% of them don't live to see the age of 40. They don't have a concern about women. They don't have a concern about the conservation and preservation of human resources. They're only interested in these human resources every four years when it's time to go out and get the vote. Shirley Chisholm, folks, 1972. Now it's 2019. 
Kamala Harris is running for president in 2020. Between Chisholm in 1972 and Harris today, only four black female candidates have run for president from a major party. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe. Wow. Eleven altogether, but from a major party, only four. Mm. <sighs> One thing I remember about Shirley Chisholm is she was known for being unbought and unbossed. Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the um, exciting things now is the women who've gotten elected to the House of Representatives, and they are diverse, and that's that's exciting. Not enough, not enough change yet, but it's it's an exciting move. We're getting Absolutely. there. Continuing in the political vein, we're now going to hear from June Jordan. She was an Afro-Caribbean. Afro-Caribbean American poet, essayist, activist, and professor of Afro-American and Women's Studies at the University of California in Berkeley. We'll hear excerpts from her Poets and Politicians Against the War speech given on February 22, 1991. This is the column that I wrote on the night that was, among other things, the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X last Thursday. Last Saturday, at a local anti-war rally organized by the Middle East Children's Alliance, I noted aloud that the war to date was costing us $56 billion every 24 hours. The cost is $1 billion at least. I therefore propose the following to the crowd scattered on the grass and under the trees. $1 billion a day for seven days for Oakland. Can you imagine that? One billion dollars a day, but to hell with the imagination. This is our city. This is our money. These are our lives. One billion dollars a day for seven days for Oakland. Or do we accept that there is only the will and the wallet when it's about kill or be killed? Do we need this money or not? Do we need it here? Do we need it now? And so on. When I left the stage, a reporter came up to me. You meant one million dollars, didn't you? No, I answered him, amazed. One billion. One billion dollars a day for seven days for Oakland. That's the bill. That's our bill for housing and drug rehabilitation and books in the public schools and hospital care and all of that good stuff. One billion dollars a day. It's a modest proposal. In less than three months, those maniacs in the White House and the Pentagon have spent $56 billion in my name and with my taxes trying to obliterate Iraq and its people and their leader. I'm saying call home the troops and the bucks. We need these big bucks to make this a homeland, not a desert right here for the troops and for you and for me. What's the problem? It's a bargain. $7 billion on the serious improvement of American life in Oakland versus $56 billion for death and destruction inside Iraq. What's the problem? But the reporter was giving me a weak smile of farewell that let me understand he found my proposal preposterous. One million dollars for life, okay. Billions for kill or be killed, okay. But really big bucks on us, the people of these United States. One billion dollars a day to promote, for example, the safety and educational attainment and communal communal happiness of 339,000 Americans. 
I must be kidding. As I walked away from the park, I felt a heavy depression overtaking me. The reporter, a tall white man with clear eyes, could not contemplate the transfer of his and my aggregate resources from death to life as a reasonable idea. Worse, he could not suppose his and my life to be worth anything close to the value of organized, high-tech, and boastful murder. But then other people stopped me to ask, how can we do that? Do we write letters or what? And so, as I write this column tonight, I am reassured because not every American has lost her mind or his soul. Not every one of my compatriots has become a flag-wrapped lunatic lusting after oil, power, the perversions of kicking ass, preferably via TV. A huge number of Americans has joined with enormous numbers of Arab peoples and European communities in Germany, England, France, Italy, Spain, and Muslim communities throughout India and Pakistan to cry out stop and when I say huge I mean it if 1,000 Americans contacted but sent by some pollster can be said to represent 250 million people then how many multi multi millions do we anti-war movement gatherings of more than 100,000 coast to coast and on every continent how many do we represent how come nobody ever does that kind of political math And tonight, February 2nd, 1991, when yet again the ruling white men of America despise peace and sneer at negotiations and intensify their arm's length armchair prosecution of this evil war, this display of a racist value system that will never allow for any nationalism that is not their own and that will never allow third world countries to control their own natural resources and that will never ever express, let alone feel regret or remorse or shame or horror at the loss of any human life that is not white. Tonight, I am particularly proud to be an African-American by launching the heaviest air assault in history against Iraq on January 15th, George Bush dared to desecrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And I want to say something else specific to you, Mr. President. It's true, you can humiliate, and you can hound, and you can smash, and burn, and terrify, and smirk, and boast, and defame, and demonize, and dismiss, and incinerate, and starve. And yes, you can force somebody, force a people, to surrender what happens, what happens to remain of their bloody bowels into your grasping, bony, dry hands. But all of us who are weak, We watch you, and we learn from your hatred, and we do not forget. And we are many, Mr. President. We are most of the people on this godforsaken planet. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. We are your host, Women of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I'm Theodora, and that was the voice of June Jordan. It might sound like she's talking to POTUS number 45. She isn't. Her final statement is directed to George Herbert Walker Bush, POTUS number 41. Feels like deja vu. Some things never change. June Jordan died in 2002 of breast cancer at the age of 65. Which is so indicative of the way that trauma created by oppression lives in our bodies and affects our lives. Lorraine Hansberry died at 35 of cancer. Audre Lorde at 58 of cancer. And the list tragically and enragingly goes on. 
You know, listening to June, I think about how relevant her words are today for Oakland teachers now, for the housing and education crises we are experiencing. And I wonder what it would look like if we really did have funds, one billion for Oakland, for improvement of life instead of death and destruction. Speaking of education, let's turn our attention to the voice of legendary organizer Dolores Huerta, reflecting on the foundational flaws of the U.S. education system. Longtime labor leader and civil rights activist, Huerta was one of the founders of the United Farm Workers, or UFW. Let's listen. As we look at our world around us today, and we wonder, how did we get here to this place in our United States of America, a land of freedom and equality, not quite so, as we know. Well, I do believe that what part, one of the problems is our educational system. And uh, yes, we do have a great structure in the United States for education, uh, but I think that we have to change the content of our educational system. I do believe that one of the reasons that we are where we at, are at today is because we have, still have, unfortunately, a land of abysmal ignorance in our society. Right. Abysmal ignorance. And one of the reasons is because in our educational system, starting with uh, kindergarten, we were never taught the true history of the United States of America, the Howard Zinn history of the United States of America. We were never taught who our first slaves were in the United States, the Native Americans, whose land we sit on, who we have never thanked or compensated for. That the African slaves that were brought here in chains to the United States of America are the ones that built the White House and the Congress of the United States of America. Welcome back to Full Circle, 94.1 KPFA. Tonight we are celebrating International Women's Day by honoring some of the voices of women who have empowered us. The voice you just heard was that of Dolores Puerta, legendary activist and organizer. KPFA is going to be continuing the celebration tomorrow with an all-day schedule devoted to women's programming, produced and engineered by women. Tune in tomorrow from 6 a.m. to midnight for music, culture, and her stories, celebrating the courage, creativity, and contributions of some of the most powerful women on the planet. Speaking of powerful women, up next, we have the one and only Angela Davis speaking about the necessity of global resistance. Here's an excerpt from her speech at the Frontline Feminist Conference of 1996 titled Women, War, and Resistance. I would say that however complicated that era may have been, the radical will to bring about structural, social, economic, political transformation was inextricably linked to a sense of international community. Now, today, transnational linkages among progressive and radical movements are much more than a question of inspiration, much more than a question of identification, much more than a question of style. They are, these transnational linkages are a question of necessity. 
There is no other way to confront exploitation, violence, war. How to create those transnational linkages in feminist contexts in ways that are respectful of all participants. Um, as many activists and scholars, Chandra Mohanty for one, have pointed out, sisterhood is not a given. Sisterhood is not a given. If such a possibility exists, it is certainly not grounded in some universal notion of femaleness, of womanness. When gender alone becomes the ticket for membership, now first of all, we end up with some very strange bedfellows, or should I say bed sisters. Um, and second of all, this sisterhood will more than likely be hierarchically structured. You know, they're big sisters, they're little sisters, and then they're baby sisters. I don't think I have to spell out who inhabits which positions uh, uh, in this hierarchy. The point I would like to make is that female or feminist transnational connections need to be politically grounded. Feminist transnational connections need to be politically grounded and informed by the real work women and men are doing around the world. Which brings me to some of the specific points I'd like to make about one struggle that could greatly benefit from increased transnational linkages. If there is one lesson women in the West or in the North should have learned from women's struggles in the third world, um, in the South, it is that an equal rights framework does not work. Particularly since the status of males is not exactly the emancipation women in these countries seek. Thank you, Sister Angela. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA, and this is Full Circle, celebrating International Women's Day. Equality, according to Angela, may not be what we're seeking. Do we really want equality with men? Go ahead, Kendall. Well, we don't want to be identical. <laughs> 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 we need a no, whole new system. Just, no, we, we need a different framework. <laughs> we need to undo patriarchy, racism, capitalism, economic As, inequality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A whole new system is not exactly what I see. A new framework, absolutely, Theodora. You know, one thing that Angela says really sticks with me particularly. She says, sisterhood is not a given. And in fact, her words remind me of a story. Let's have a listen. When you think of a Muslim... Who do you see? When you picture a Jew, what do you imagine? It would be well for us to think about how we digest the images that are so often fed to us by Hollywood and the mainstream media, and most importantly, how these images work to create and maintain cultural divides.
Evelyn Ida Hertz, age 85, born a child of the temple to poor Russian immigrants. My mother's mother. A woman with rigid conservative opinions. She'll tell you how she feels about it all right, even when you have not asked. Strong, calculated, and a natural-born storyteller, she has many things, but quiet is not one of them. Her life made possible only by her parents' daring flee from Nazi-occupied Poland, Evelyn naturally felt the strong need to fight for her own, because for Evelyn, the threat of annihilation was a very real thing, an idea instilled in her from the time she was a small child. In the past few years, mainstream media's portrayal of the modern Muslim, the terrorist, has really done a number on her. As far as she can gather, the primary threat the Jewish people now face is embodied by the terror-invoking jihadist, an image which for her has become symbolic of all Muslims. It always struck me that she could be so ready to hate someone she had never met. It has been said that fear breeds hate, and hate she did. September, 2010. After a long battle with pneumonia, Evelyn awakens to a frightening circumstance. Unable to breathe, she is rushed to the hospital. One month, two hospital beds, and three misdiagnoses later, she was in a bad way, wheelchair bound, unable to go to the bathroom or even clean herself without assistance. Wary and weak, she insisted on going home, back to her comfortable, normal life as it always was. Fate had other plans. <laughs> Enter Fatima Rukhshana Ibrahim, age 45, of Sri Lankan descent. The only girl born into a tribe of men, she too was a strong-willed character, raised in the mosque and a leader of her community in her own right. Then along came the well-famed tsunami of late 2004. On that fateful day, she watched as her father, her husband, and her son were swept out from beneath her and into the sea. The devastation drove in her a restlessness, and that restlessness drove her to America in search of a life beyond motherhood and widowdom. About to begin her very first job in the States, a country altogether new to her, Fatima was a nervous wreck. Though fear-stricken outside the entrance to my Nana's home, do not mistake, this was not a woman faint of spirit. Steadying herself, she ventured a gentle knock. Alarmed, Evelyn found herself standing face to face with a large dark woman, dressed head to toe in what she took to be traditional Arab garb, head covering and all. The woman may as well have been wearing a bomb for all she knew. For several days, the women danced around each other, each one wary of the other. But then, as the weeks went by, I noticed something very strange was happening, something very different. One day, I found Fatima cooking curry, a traditional Sri Lankan dish. In between bites, Nana managed to explain, it's vegetarian, you know, the Muslims don't eat pork either. Halal, it's just like keeping kosher, really. On one of my next visits, I found her wearing a traditional Sri Lankan scarf. Nana, I asked, what's the occasion? Isn't it lovely, she responded. Fatima's brother sent it to me all the way from the old country. Her change in behavior did not go unnoticed. When Evelyn's strength had returned enough to resume her weekly lunch date with the ladies, I happened to overhear from my place at the kitchen sink. But Evie, she's Muslim in her, praise be to God. How can you bear it? 
What followed was not only a surprise unto the table, but to myself as well. Blabenstein, Ada, would you? I'm just happy to have someone I like, someone I can talk to, someone who is helping me get through the days. I could barely believe my ears. In the following months, I came to learn many things about Muslims that I had never known before. It turns out that many of our rituals really are quite similar. Take death, for example. Just as Jews sit Shiva, so too do Muslims mourn publicly for a certain number of days. And just as we wear only black during this time, they wear only white. In our holidays, too, many of our customs are nearly identical, fasts and feasts alike. On one of my last visits, I happened to notice a little black book at her table. This time it was not my ears I would check, but my eyes. It was the Quran, and what's more, she was actually reading it. Shocked, I asked what inspired her. She responded with a story about a request Fatima had recently come to her with. She wanted to know if it would be all right if she prayed, and she explained that she had been missing her daily prayers for some time now, out of fear she might offend. Nana's words verbatim, Her God, my God, the more praying the better. Of course I found all this to be extraordinary, but it was not until she invited Fatima to Passover for the first time that I realized what their relationship meant for us not only as a family, but also for our community at large. In a world dominated by escalating violence between these two cultures, this is a remarkable glimpse into what is possible in the world when we decide to take our learning into our own hands and to walk towards each other instead of away. In sharing our stories, we can create unthinkable bonds. All we have to do is listen with a willing ear. It seems the path from adversity to sisterhood is not so long and hard as we've all been led to believe after all. As we feed them from their home. You are listening to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 FM. We're the women of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I'm Kat Petru, and that was the voice of Kenny C. of Group 43 with her commentary about her nana. And I so appreciate it. I have a nana of my own, Madla, and she is a survivor of Terezin, one of the concentration camps during the Holocaust. And she straight up told a Nazi no when he tried to separate her from her mother and her sister. So Mm. I carry that um, resistance to military violence and militarism with me in my blood. And I also carry the uh, rematriation of Palestine to its people. and in support of the return, the Nakba. Thank you, Kendall. Thank you, Kat, for sharing. And thank you, everyone, for allowing me the space to share. And also, thank you to everyone for sharing tonight. We want to give one more big thank you to Addie Gevins for compiling the Pacifica Archive, American Women Making History and Culture, 1963 to 1982. And to graduate apprentice and our fearless leader, Teresa Adams, in there in the booth. We love you, Teresa. We could not have done this without you. This is Hannah. We'd also like to take some time here just to hold a moment of respectful silence, both for the voices that we had to cut from tonight's show just for the sake of time, and for all the voices we never get to hear. So here's to us, the women of First Voice, raising more and more voices for future generations of broadcasting. And speaking of that, don't forget, folks, the First Voice Apprenticeship Program at KPFA is looking for new voices 
and you could be one of them. You too could be on the radio. Do you have a story to tell or a viewpoint not oft reflected in the media? For more information and to apply, visit kpfaapprentice.org or call 510-848-6767, extension 235. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week to Full Circle Open House Part 1 with our very own Mari Nakagawa and Arya Moshirian. And tune in tomorrow for a full day of special programming in honor of International Women's Day right here on KPFA 94.1 FM. That music you're hearing in the background is You Gotta Be by Desiree. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Freewill and Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Tonight's executive producer, once again, is Teresa Adams. Teresa! Teresa! We've been your host this evening, Theodora. Kenny C. Kat Petru. Hannah Wilson. And Sharon Peterson. Thanks to our fellow apprentices and male allies, Stevie G, on the board and tech assistants, Aria and Shaquille. Up next, La Unda Bajita. Said, read the books your father read, trying to solve the puzzles in your own sweet time. Some may have more cash than you, others take a different view. My, oh my, hey, hey. you gotta be bad, you gotta be bold, you gotta be wiser, you gotta be hard, you gotta be tough, you gotta be stronger. You gotta be cool, you gotta be calm, you gotta stay together